my sense of those digital events is those are not going away and they're not going away in 2020 and they're not going away in 2021. I think the good news about that is that those digital webinar type engagements were always a part of the strategy as you moved folks you know, closer to your organization. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I sit down with Dan Reed, who's the Senior Director of Digital Fundraising at MediaCause, a mission-driven marketing and creative agency that helps nonprofits grow and accelerate their impact. Dan has spent years helping a variety of organizations from a national chapter organization to healthcare to other organizations across a variety of verticals really develop and strategize on how they can leverage digital channels to raise much needed funding for their mission and has actually specialized a lot in helping to craft effective monthly donor campaigns or what others call recurring giving campaigns that help you bring in sustainable revenue on a regular basis while connecting your supporters together as part of a community to increase the connection and confidence they have in your charity, which ultimately drives up donor retention and engagement. Dan brings a front row seat level of experience, and I can't wait to hear his insight. Let's dive in. So then today you work with Media Cause, which is helping organizations in a lot of different ways really develop and build their funding strategies and just how they can really expand their impact. But before we dive into all of that and kind of your perspective and experience working with nonprofit clients, I want to kind of dig into something else I saw on your profile which is about that you're a novice musician, an amateur golfer, and a Midwestern accent aficionado. Like, I have to know the story behind all of those things and then how you ended up at Media Cause. <laughs> well, sure. That's a great question. I say that um, I'm a Midwest transplant myself from Chicago. Uh, and, and I'm currently in DC, Washington, D.C. Um, but I, I've been playing golf my entire uh, life since I was 10 years old. I, I, uh, I worked on golf courses as a high school student and college student. Um, and so I kind of grew up with the game in that respect. But, um, as far as my, my novice musicianship, I, I, I the emphasis on novice, um, I do try and, and my best that a few, a few, uh, instruments here and there. And I, I had taken lessons as a child, but, um, Today, it's a very private thing I would do, I'd say. Certainly don't want to perform for anyone in public. Got it, got it. So it's not like you'll come on and like be the opening act for our summit in the fall. Oh, God forbid, no. <laughs> yeah, that's great. But it, and obviously, it sounds like, you know, from Chicago, now in D.C., you know, working with Media Cause and some of the, the incredible organizations that you all serve at Media Cause, what was kind of your like path or the squiggle that you took to even get to Media Cause? Sure. Um, well, as far as uh, philanthropic work, I'm a firm believer that charity starts at home. It certainly started in my home. Um, and I, I had that background um, as an adolescent, um, would often participate in um, 
run walks. And uh, as a high school student, I, I was a runner. And so I enjoyed participating in those and um, ended up sort of by way of a friend of a friend work, uh, got an introduction to work at my first job, um, which was us two international, uh, which is a, in Chicago, which is a prostate cancer education and support network organization out of Chicago. And they ran, um, run walks, which is kind of where I started in the world of tech and fundraising. Um, and this was more than 10 years ago now. Um, but I really enjoyed it at the time. Um, it was, as far as the mission itself, um, I was new to the mission and thankfully didn't have many folks in my family that, um, suffered from prostate cancer. Um, Mm. but being able to just see program delivery in person, um, speaking with volunteers or witnessing meetings and, or speaking with beneficiaries, you know, men and their families, on how our work had helped them was something that I, I guess I was addicted to as soon as I got a taste of that um, and kind of fell in love with philanthropy. And, and as I was there, we, I had an opportunity to travel um, uh, on my organization's behalf to different conferences and things. And a few, well, a few conferences that I, we came to were in DC and uh, we stayed at the Omni Hotel. It's a beautiful hotel and um, kind of fell in love with uh, the, the area and what it, um, and, and D.C. itself. And so I wanted to sort of have a new challenge. And that's where I moved when I moved um, to Washington, D.C. to work full time at the Smithsonian Institution in their uh, central office of advancement. And I think that's where I really got my um, sort of formal education, I'd say. Um, in in advancement and in, in development um, in all the moving, the various moving pieces that go into that um, it was of course fascinating I think people are familiar enough with the Smithsonian Institution it was just, it was a wonderful place to work um, yeah. and being able to see <clears throat> similarly you know program delivery in person when you got to see you know the look on a kid's face and you think like oh, I was kind of a part of that that exhibit that got funded, that got put together and that, that was really cool to see also. Um, and so that aspect, you know, really has not gone away, but ironically, you know, my next step was, uh, world food program USA, which is more of a, an opportunity for me to, um, you know, just continue to grow professionally. Um, I think work for a mission that, um, is hugely important, um, with the only personal downside for me, it was the, you know, no longer, I, I was no longer able to see program delivery in person. I thought I would miss that. And I did, and I do. Um, but I'd say it, it was a nice trade-off in the sense that I got to really work for another, a wonderful mission, um, and a different kind of mission altogether than I had worked on previously. And with a whole different set of strategy, um, when it comes to the difference between, you know, brick and mortar, cultural institutions and how they might raise money, um, to, a UN sister UN agency, international relief group. Um, to that end, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to learn, um, and expand my, my knowledge base because ultimately, um, what I wanted to do in my career is actually where I'm at now at media cause, which was, um, I wanted to be able to work with a lot of different missions. I think I learned early on the Smithsonian, um, that, you know, the diversity of missions and thing causes that I care about, I wanted to be able to participate in the Smithsonian to a degree 
um, allowed me to do that in the sense that they have a lot of different aspects of their programming. Um, but I think broadly, I felt that I could do this um, for a whole host of nonprofits in different kinds and, and not want, not necessarily want to work for just one. And for me, that's, to me, that's the best part of, of my job now. Absolutely. And so, and, and it's so interesting because you have a varied background. Like a lot of people we talk to kind of grew up in like healthcare or education or international development. Like that's my background. I, I spent seven years in international development and like a specific type of nonprofit. And other similarities, I just like learned my trade within that one vertical. Your background's interesting because you were in a cancer education and support network. You were in, you know, an arts institution and then you were at, you know, an international, you know, humanitarian aid type organization. There's obviously clear differences there, but what wasn't different? Like, what have you seen across all three of those? And then obviously the clients you work with today, that's just fundamental to how you need to be successful with your fundraising or what you need to be or what you need to have to be successful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, of course, uh, some similarities. Um, uh, they're similar platforms. Um, even across the different sets of scale there. I think um, some of the, uh, I, whenever we uh, come back to like what we, what the nonprofit needs, it, it does ultimately come back to people um, in the end who I think are, um, have, have the people who have that vision of what, where they know the nonprofit needs to go. And then people who can like interpret that, um, and often those folks are not the same. I think um, that was one of the big lessons that I learned at the Smithsonian, I think, was that you had visionaries and leadership roles, and then you also had really capable managers and doers um, who were able to like take that vision and turn it into reality. Um, and because a lot of that, that transition, I think it can be painful for organizations when you're talking about seismic changes, either structurally, uh, technology technologically you know a whole host of different ways and so i think that in that respect i think it always does come down to having that the people power um and with on, on staff uh, that seems to be at least what at least what i've come across like a very the most common denominator across um, nonprofits, at least the ones that are scaling and you mentioned that, you know, obviously people's important, but then it's also like the program and how you actually like design the fundraising systems that mm -hmm. you're using to really deliver the strategy and then obviously connect like supporters with the story of your cause. You know, it's kind of what all organizations are doing. And you mentioned you had the unique opportunity at the World Food Program to really build out their programming, especially re related to digital and then specifically a monthly giving program. Could you walk us through some of that and some of the lessons you learned in being able to build those and help kind of really spark that as a core driver of their growth? Sure. I mean, I think um, with the monthly giving at WFP, I mean, to back out a little bit, some of the more, you know, technical universal things, I'd say that we, that I was able to bring the lessons I brought from the Smithsonian um, that were essentially apples to apples to WFP were um, a lot of the technical pieces that we put in place right away, as far as your automations, as far as how you data, uh, segment your data, how you sync your data, um, those things ran true. Um, and I think for the first part of my tenure at WFP, I'd say like that first year was me basically building out the infrastructure on the back end to be able to scale um, accordingly. Uh, and for a better part of a year, that was really the task at hand. 
Um, we were running appeals. <clears throat> they were modest. They were, you know, one-time donor appeals uh, that I think did well um, considering. Um, but really, it wasn't until we sort of set up the, you know, the data measurement pieces, the automation that we wanted to have in place, the segmentation structure that we wanted to see um, to run the treatment that we wanted to run to the very selects that we had. Um, then layered on top of that, sort of that subsequent cultivation and engagement and stewardship strategy before we really thought about um, the appeal strategy. Because the reality was with the international relief, our appeals of time were being um, driven by the news, driven by current events. Um, and to that end, we were just making, we wanted to make sure that we were keeping the people that were responding to those um, engaged. Because too often in international, we found that the donors were happy to be generous that for a moment in time. But unfortunately, as attention waned, so did their generosity. Um, and so, so, you know, with the monthly giving piece of this, um, what we had a few good things in place from a technical standpoint that, um, were opportunities in my eyes. We re we had a credit card updater on our back end that allowed us to, um, just automatically update the credit cards that had lapsed. So from a sort of a business standpoint, I thought we were in a good position to scale. Um, I had full confidence in our tech to, to scale. Um, and then with our, with the way international in our instance, we were, you know, friends of agency working in the United States on behalf of the UNWFP. And of course they're raising money internationally. Um, and as you might know, I'm sure, you know, um, the monthly giving is nothing new, uh, in the Eurozone. And so to that end, like they had a, um, at least a, the, uh, the structural pieces from a, <clears throat> a creative end in place. So they, in other words, they had had, they developed a, um, a branded program that was essentially not doing anything because in the WFP space, anyways, there was, you know, limited capacity, but in my eyes, there was a ton of opportunity to take what they had positioned as zero hunger heroes, um, and move it to, um, the U S market. They had a whole host of assets that I was simply pleased. Um, I had not, I didn't really have an opinion on the creative or the aesthetic. I was simply happy with the fact that it was holistically branded. Um, and, and I was able to take actual, um, digital assets and put them in place on the U S side, um, so that we could, similarly run a sister effort if you will of zero hunger heroes and it was cool because we got the call you know basically the zero hunger heroes of wfp are a global community um and so that was a big sort of like first step <clears throat> or series of steps i'd say in, in building um that part of the program and then the when we started to scale we really looked at it um around really trying to be sort of opportunistic and so we we were aggressively ran a monthly upsell on our single donation forms and we also uh were pretty aggressive um in terms of um positioning monthly giving asks um during key moments so typically key moments for us were um there was a couple instances of 60 minutes in fact i know wfp tonight will be on nbc um news on their work in 
Yemen. Um, and I'm hopeful that it helps them drive more monthly giving. Um, but essentially we had opportunities where WFP's programming, um, would be front and center to a national audience. And we'd of course see an uptick across of our, across all of our traffic and, and, and KPIs. And so that's when we started to make sure, do a good job of, of acquiring monthly donors at the onset when, in other words, acquiring monthly donors when they would otherwise have been would be one-time monthly donors. And so with that opportunistic sort of positioning of our digital assets, and this happened a lot in, in paid search um, and on our owned assets. Um, but as far as we ultimately got to a place where we were running, um, proactively running sustainer appeals um, during key moments of the year. Um, and that's when I thought we did a good job too of, of moving our existing one-time donors to, to monthly. Um, and so I, I, in that respect, I think we, we started to do a lot of the little things right um, over a period of time. And with, with, those, with that tech in place, um, that's what was scalable. Um, I thought we did a good job of upscaling. Yeah, it's so interesting to see monthly giving programs and how they do end up taking off and what does it require there. So as, as you look at that experience you had with WFP and now you advise others, you know, I assume on also how they could structure these similar type of offers, what are some of the core components that are must-haves? Or if you're speaking to our audience and you know they have a program that's kind of you know floundered out. Or they really haven't thought about this, but now you know their event strategies have kind of been upended, and they're looking for new ways that they can have a, a an ongoing conversation and community of supporters. Monthly giving seems obvious, but I think there's more nuance, and it's much more difficult to get off the ground. What what advice would you have for that individual? Sure, I think a, a lot of what I look at the the first thing I basically ask clients is do you have a compelling case for monthly support? Um, it's pretty easy for nonprofits, I think, to develop a case for a one-time gift to fund a particular project and then the project is over and done with. Everyone, hyper hands, we're all very happy. But like, if you can, how do you make, how can you make a compelling case for that ongoing support? Um, and I think that to me is ultimately the trick. So like when we, with WFP, I thought we had a very compelling case for that ongoing gift. Um, the, 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 the agency was dealing with, uh, with a protracted, multiple protracted crises across the world. Um, to that end, I think donors are smart. And when you can make a compelling case, um, for a monthly gift, uh, donors will give and they'll, and they'll give monthly. And I would add to that. I think my sense thing of, of things too, right now, I was actually talking about, this is like the third conversation I've had on monthly giving today. I think, um, I, these days, particularly during a recession right now, um, I think monthly giving is a, a great opportunity for um, donors to renew labs, get donors, and I think you know look to retain their some of their one-time and multi-year donors as well. Because um, to that end, I feel like the 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 appetite, the the propensity for donors to give monthly, I think, is growing. Um, and I think we're seeing that maybe not the particular donors shifting from one time to monthly. I think there's a lot of that, but I think as the new generation of Gen X and millennial donors moves into their giving years, I, I feel that, that, that monthly giving will be a big part of that. 
Yeah, I don't disagree. I come from a monthly giving background as well and have always been a huge advocate for it. I think getting it right, though, is the challenge. I see a lot of organizations that try it, but then it's not a core part of their offering or they don't integrate it in the way that you already recommended. And that's where then kind of they abandon it and go back to just more of appeals or emergency appeals or kind of these one-time appeals across their annual funds, mm-hmm. uh, donor base. Um, and they don't really kind of look at it as a as a way to engage uniquely uh, with donors that actually has huge lifetime value. We saw like 4X the lifetime value of donors, not just because they were monthly givers, but because by being a monthly giver, they were actually more likely to commit to one-off appeals that we did uh, while I was at World Help. Mm. Um, and that was huge for us. And I think that's not the obvious things that you see when you're looking at it uh, without that exposure or experience to monthly giving. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe uh, maybe what's happening is that perhaps monthly giving requires a bit more patience. Um, I think maybe <laughs> the um, my sense of things is, you know, the the and people who are these organizations who are raising these dollars and bringing in the monthly giving, I think they see the the track of, of progress. And I think I worry that sometimes there's stakeholders around them that um, that might not see it that way. And there might be pressures, you know, trying to drive that short-term revenue while also trying to drive the donor LTV. And it, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, as far as... Maybe another aspect of, of what we did well, I thought at um, at WFP USA was we never really lost our humility when in terms of like testing what we thought to be true, um, in terms of what was happening with the monthly with the monthly file. So as a good for instance, we tested the inclusion or exclusion of um, a, a tailored um, stewardship additional stewardship piece. Um, that ran concurrently with our regular cultivation stewardship piece for all of our file. Um, and we split it for the monthlies. And what we found was that the monthly donors who were giving, gosh, I want to say more than um, 40 or $50, um, or excuse me, more than $35 per month were more likely to make a subsequent one-time gift because of the additional treatment um, compared to the exact opposite with the lower, smaller donor donor cohort. And for whatever reason, it seemed that the more we gave the special treatment to the lower dollar cohort, the less they were compelled to give one time. And so... To, as far as why that may be, we, you know, there was a few hypotheses at the time, um, but ultimately it helped us understand that like what we need to do and how we need to think through our different segments of our monthly donor file um, and how we, you know, needed to get more granular if we were to think about upgrading them and moving them from into the mid-level donor track, for example. Yeah. And I do think it takes, I loved your, your point about like kind of maintaining your humility and not overemphasizing what hasn't worked in the past or, oh, we tried that and it didn't work mentality that kind of uh, sours a lot of conversations within organizations and being just humble and just say like, hey, let's try it anyways. Let's make sure we test these assumptions. It's so important in normal times. I think now more than ever, 
Um, I've talked to a few agencies specifically, and as they've worked with their clients, what worked in January or last July is not working necessarily in the same way it did before, or things that didn't work in prior environments are now working better. And so it's kind of even going back and testing your assumptions again when some other changes are happening in the marketplace. And those changes right now are pretty paramount. Like 2020 has brought a series of things to light that have been either suppressed or have been magnified because of the global pandemic that, you know, COVID um, and the resulting shelters at home and uh, kind of the global shutdown has had. How, How are you seeing your clients or how are you advising your clients on how they should be preparing and testing into the future now as they move through Q3 and then obviously into year end uh, giving this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for, I said at the start of the pandemic twice all that, well, we're going to learn so much as fundraisers this year and hopefully it's only one year. Um, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, we're going to learn a lot about donors um, in different missions. And I think we're, we're still seeing that now. I think to your point, we we've been so surprised by some of our clients campaigns that have gone so well um, year over year that have had to be changed around um, to, uh, you know, pivot strategies, pivot, pivot strategies on pivot strategies. Um, and the campaigns went off well. And then we're of course seeing nonprofits who we might expect to be suffering or at least see numbers down um, relative to their own performance year over year. And so, what the general advice that we've been saying, you know, is, is, is pretty, it's, it's multifold. I mean, with the donors that the, the good news, I think is the people that are, are giving to nonprofits right now, um, they're, those donors are amazing as far if, if as far as the nonprofit is concerned, you know, it, anyone that is making a gift during the pandemic and during this recession, recession, either a new donor or a previous year donor is like, a, in my eyes, a new type of person for us to consider as we think through end of year, you know, the COVID era donor. Um, I think we're seeing other, a lot of missions maybe that sh- otherwise should have seen more light um, by the donor. Um, we are seeing, and I'm, I'm optimistic about some of those organizations um, working on cultural issues Um that are long overdue. And so I'm optimistic for some of those groups in Q3 and four. Um, for other groups, I think um, the, the staying out in front and of your donor, you know, having those continued conversations, whatever that looks like. Um, you know, like I said, we had an event, we had a, we had an event for a client, um, that I thought a digital event that went really well that had previously been a, uh, a an in-person event. And my sense of those digital events is those are not going away and they're not going away in 2020 and they're not going away in 2021. I think um, the good news about that is that those digital webinar type uh, engagements were always a part of um, the mid-level upgrade strategy as you moved folks you know, closer to your organization, right? So like to a degree, I think this is the, it could be the silver lining that helps some organizations that may or may not have been doing that as well as they would have liked to just get good at it. And because, you know, unfortunately this pandemic has forced their hand in that respect. And then 
general sort of recession sort of logic has been is our sort of advice advice uh, as far as Q3 and thinking about you know thinking a little more critically more than maybe we otherwise would around your ask string um, you know essentially making sure to renew the donors even if it's at a downgrade um, just simply to keep that inertia of giving going um, and also you know thinking and like we had touched on earlier, but in a big way about monthly giving in, in Q4. Um, we've had a couple clients that dipped our toes into what is otherwise the one-time appeal season, uh, one-time, gift, one-time gift appeal season. Um, and in certain channels where we saw a lot of intent, we threw monthly giving acquisition um, into the end of year effort, um, that I thought really did a good job of, of driving sustainer acquisition. And so I'm optimistic about the ability of nonprofits to, to, again, convert otherwise would be one-time donors to, to monthly, particularly in, in, in this recession. And particularly because I think a lot of organizations are demanding donors attention right now. So, I think there's a lot of donors out there that are wishing they could do a lot for a lot of different groups. Um, and I think monthly giving is the best bet for a lot of those donors. Yeah. And I think it's just kind of, again, taking a fresh look um, on what strategy might best align right now with your supporters and how you can still engage them in your story. And that's something we talk a lot about is like, how do you just make sure that the strategy you have is really focused on the supporters and the story and your story doesn't really change. Like what pre COVID post COVID, like what you're doing still probably matters. Like, and if it doesn't, then that's a different story. <laughs> but most, co- or, you know, people listening to this, like the work that they're doing mattered pre-COVID and post-COVID. But what has changed is the supporter. And what has been impacted is kind of what that ends up looking like and how that now needs to be considered to inform the strategy you use to drive those individuals to connect with your story. And, and I think there's a lot of creative ways to do that. And I'm, and I'm actually really excited, as you mentioned, like, what we're going to learn through this. The, the thing I want to dig a little bit is you said this COVID error donor, era of donor. Can you unpack that a little bit more and share more of kind of what you're thinking there and how nonprofits should be talking about that? Because I haven't heard anyone else mention that and how maybe this is a new breed or new type of donor that we need to be considering. I just, my sense of, um, so we've had a couple clients that, um, uh, for organizations that really are not doing anything in direct response to the pandemic, particularly that we're not doing anything nationally um, or internationally. And I think I was um, just really astounded to see the number of new donors acquired for this cause. And to that end, it made me think that it's, it, to me, it's such a telling, um, you know, when someone makes a gift, it's a, it's a, it says something about a donor. And I think when we, when they make a gift is also telling. And so, you know, we think about this a lot in practical terms, you know, when someone made a gift, it was it to an email. Oh, that email did well. Well, when someone makes a gift during this pandemic and it's not towards, you know, a for PPP and all that kind of direct response, this is needs for the, for the response and they're choosing it like an arts and culture organization for whatever reason, that to me is that suggests that that person is telling you about their values. They're telling you that they're, that they care about your mission in a pandemic. And to me, that, to me, that, that says a lot. And I would say that in regard to 
your multi-year donors, people that have been there, and then also here now, that that's a really wonderful per- wonderful person. And then the new people, the people that are new to your mission this year, I'm, I'm so curious to learn more about them if I'm an organization. Um, and, and what made them, what drove that gift, particularly if it's not as obvious as like, okay, you're, you're responding to this crisis. It's very obviously you acquire a new donor and why. But I'm thinking more some of the your other brick and mortar organizations um, doing a bunch of great work that is just at the moment tangential to to what the most donors are probably focused on right now. Absolutely, and that's really interesting. And I'm sure we are going to learn a ton by listening to those individuals and then identifying how we move forward. I also think the I was talking on a, a webinar this morning about this is that I think COVID has changed a lot and has obviously had huge impacts. And I don't want to underestimate the ripple it has had on, you know, people's personal lives, uh, professional lives, um, also also the economy and the global economies that it's impacted on communities, all of that. I do think, though, there's going to be this profound impact on just, like, people in general, similar to other big moments in time where we will remember this for a while. And this will impact how we think about the world, how we make decisions, what we get involved with, how we prioritize personal lives and professional endeavors, all of that. And I think that all rolls up to how we invest our philanthropic effort, because I do think there's a, there's a, a giving is deeply personal. And so as our personal preferences change and as our outlook on life changes, it should inform, it will inform our philanthropic efforts and I think likely it will be in, in a profound way. And where we give money, where we invest our time um, will shift significantly going forward. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic on that point. Um, I think we're still, we still need to learn a lot. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of badness is still going to happen um, before it gets yeah. better. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I, it's part of, as you were saying that I was thinking about monthly giving again and to that end, like as, as people's attitudes change and as other organizations compete for sheriff wallet, it's going to be an all the more reason to um, think about monthly giving. Um, but I'm hopeful um you know, I, I, the, the, the sentiment from the event that I was at yesterday was that um, it's sort of the next generation's uh, society to have. And I think, and that was coming from the elders um, at this event. And I, I, that made me feel positive about it. I think from a fundraising standpoint, I still do, though, worry about... Um, competition around the election i i do worry about um donors ability to give i mean their actual capacity um as individuals i mean i think we had been seeing before the pandemic that organizations were raising more money from less people um and that as a trend i, I i'm hoping can can maybe stop um as we, as these organizations and um, society at large works to sort of, you know, rebuild, um, you know, a more equitable, um, future for, and across a whole host of different, um, you know, time or place and places. We, we'll just have to, you know, 
lean forward into it and you know see see how the future shapes. But I do think it's it's also in in charity's hands to be able to say, hey, how are we going to respond? How are we going to pivot? And as you mentioned, so many have already done that, mm-hmm. um, and we'll continue to do that because um, I think our work is is essential in the work that your clients do, our customers do here at Virtuous. Um, they're they're working on some of the biggest needs in our world, and I think that will continue. And I think the people, as you mentioned, are really going to help power that forward. And so I, I, I likewise am optimistic. So Dan, I appreciate the time. Yeah, no, thank you for having me, Noah. It, it was nice to talk to you this afternoon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the Responsive Fundraising Playbook, which includes 20-plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Podcast.